Hey, I'm Cameron, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad that you are here and would love to get connect with you and your family. One easy way you can do that is to text River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some of our upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount that you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. If you have a Bible, let's grab those together, open them up to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter number 4. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take out your smartphone. You can download a Bible app or the River Church app. There's a Bible feature on there, but I want you to be able to see the Word of God for yourself and encounter the Scripture for yourself. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the vision of the church uh, that we believe Jesus has laid out for us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, to see people who do not know the Lord come to know Christ, to receive the pardon of their sins, the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of eternal life, and to see those folks who are reached by the power of the gospel gather together and to celebrate the name of Jesus. We see baptism being this kind of public inauguration of the church gathering together in a public identification with Christ. And then the believers who have gathered together growing with each other, growing in fellowship with each other, growing in love for one another, growing in our understanding of the gospel, growing in grace, growing in uh, the, the knowledge of the Lord growing in our understanding of the gifts the Holy Spirit has imparted to us. And then from there, going back to reach, reaching people with the gospel. And so we talk often about reaching, gathering, and growing. For me, I have been preaching that for more than a decade. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, some of you uh, have grown tired of hearing me preach that. Trust me, I've been tired for nine years doing it. So uh, but I know that preaching the vision is important because for myself and for the church, we drift from that. We forget what in the world God wants us to be doing, both as an individual part of the church and collectively as part of the church. So coming back to and proclaiming that vision for Christ's church from the scripture is incredibly important. So we consistently do that. But for me, the challenge from the Lord that really... Uh, sprang out of uh, some reading this past summer that I did was the importance of prayer. The importance that without seeking the Lord, about uh, praying for lost people, um, we're never going to be effective for the cause of the gospel. Praying together as a church is important. We see Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae in chapter number one. We see his prayer for lost people and for effective gospel ministry later on in chapter four. But I want to take you to Paul's reflection on a leader in the church in Colossians chapter number four in verse number 12. And we're going to see uh, Paul's um, reference to reflection on his testimony to the prayers of this man named Epaphras. So Colossians chapter number four, Paul's coming to the end of his letter to the Christians there in Colossae. And so you'll see some names that he's mentioning, some people that he's sending some greetings to, and some folks who are with him that are sending greetings to the believers there 
uh, in the city of Colossae. Verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Now, Epaphras is mentioned back in chapter number one of the letter in verse number seven. And Paul says this, he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, just as you heard the gospel from Epaphras, and he says, our beloved fellow servant. So kind of the history of the church, just really quickly, Paul had ministered for three years in the city of Ephesus. He had never come to uh, the Colossians. He had never seen many of them face to face. But the story that we can kind of piece together is Epaphras had probably been in Ephesus, heard the gospel, repented of his sins, believed in Jesus, and went back to the city, his hometown, and he began to share the gospel with his friends and neighbors. The church was likely hosted in the home of a man named Philemon. There's a small little letter right before the book of Hebrews called Philemon. Philemon was likely the host. So the church, when they gathered, they didn't have buildings like we have. Those really didn't even come around till about the third century. But they were meeting in homes. And so Philemon seemed to be a wealthy man. He had space in his home. And so he's hosting the church in Colossae. The pastor was probably Epaphras. So he was, God had used him to kind of launch and plant the church. These folks had heard the gospel originally from Epaphras. And Paul says he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Now go back to Colossians chapter number four. Paul at this time is in prison in Rome. And so the story that we can put together is that Epaphras had left the believers in Colossae and had traveled to the Apostle Paul, maybe to get some counsel, maybe to get some wisdom, because there was some danger in the church at Colossae. There was some danger, some false teachers were coming in, they were teaching some wrong things about Christ, they were saying Christ was a a created being, they were saying Christ was maybe an angel, they were teaching all of these nonsensical things, they were trying to put these rules on people that seemed to be religious and seemed to be right, but Paul says, listen, they have the illusion of correcting behavior, they have the illusion of changing the heart, but they really do not. And Paul says the gospel is the only thing that transforms someone from the inside and then changes how they act on the outside. And so Paul had traveled and was with Paul, and uh, excuse me, Epaphras had traveled and was with Paul uh, in prison. Matter of fact, in Philemon, Paul calls him a fellow prisoner of Jesus Christ. So here in chapter number four, coming to the end of the letter, look at verse 12 again. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning you know him, you've seen his behavior, he knows your hometown, there's a connection here. Paul's saying, essentially, you may not know me, we may not have ever seen each other face to face, but Epaphras is one of you, and Paul gives him an incredible compliment here. He says in verse 12, he is a servant of Christ Jesus. It's the word doulos. Sometimes to soften things up, we translate that word servant, but it really is the word slave. Paul is saying of Epaphras, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. He belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, at this time period in history, the slave-master relationship was all over the Roman Empire. 
That's what the word Lord means. Lord is the opposite of slave. So Paul is saying of Epaphras, he belongs to the Lord Jesus. What the Lord Jesus tells his servant or his slave Epaphras to do, this guy is busy doing. One commentator said it this way, a servant of Jesus Christ indicates the complete subjection of self to Christ. Meaning I belong to Christ, what does Christ want me to do? So Paul says, hey, he's one of you. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he says hello. Right, very personal, right? He greets you. He just, I just want you to know that Epaphras is here with me as I'm writing this letter, and he just said, hey, Paul, will you, will you tell him I said hi? Will you tell him I'm thinking about him? Will you tell him I just, man, I, I can't wait to be back together. I don't know when that's gonna be, but just please say hi for me. And so Paul says, listen, I'm here. Epaphras is with me. He is one of you. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he says hello. And then Paul says this about Epaphras. He says he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Now, the Greek word there, New Testament originally written in Greek, the Greek word for struggling is where we get our English word agonizing. So you could literally translate that passage there. He greets you always agonizing on your behalf in his prayers. Now hold your spot in Colossians and go back just a few books to the Gospels. The Gospel of Luke specifically. Luke chapter number 22. This idea of agonizing in prayer, or is it's translated there in the ESV, struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Luke chapter number 22, in verse number 39. This is an account in the life of Jesus. This is the night that Jesus would be betrayed. This is, he has just finished what's known as the Last Supper. He's had the Passover celebration with his disciples, and now he is in the Garden of Gethsemane in a little valley, the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives is right there, and Jesus is praying. In just a few hours, Judas will lead a mob into that garden, and they will arrest Jesus. Verse 39 says, And he came out, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus comes to the garden with 11 disciples. Judas has left, and he leaves eight of them in one spot, and he goes on a little further. We know this from Matthew and Mark and John. He goes on a little further, and Peter, James, and John are there. And he begins to pour out his soul even more to those men, the the inner circle of the disciples, and he says, keep watch with me. Pray with me. I'm inviting you to join me in. This is a really pivotal moment. He's already told them he's going to be arrested. He's already told them he's going to be crucified. He's already told them what he's going to go through. So he's asking his friends to join him in that moment. 
Luke is a physician, a historian and a physician. And so you'll see in his gospel that he points out something unique about the physical strain, the physical struggle, and here's the the word that Paul would use, the physical agony that Jesus is in in this moment of prayer. So his prayer is, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. If there's any other way to pay for the sins of mankind, please, please make that way. Let's do it that way. Nevertheless, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him, verse 43, an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So here is Jesus feeling immense strain that the spiritual weight that he is feeling upon his shoulders begins to have and take a mental toll. Jesus is feeling deep anguish. He's he's feeling deep sorrow and deep grief. You could even say Jesus is feeling great fear about what is coming. And so an angel is dispatched from heaven to care for Jesus Verse 44, Luke records, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So much so that just a bizarre medical condition comes where Jesus is no longer sweating from the pain and the burden and his heart is racing and his blood pressure may be up, but blood is literally piercing through his skin coming through his where sweat would normally be. We see a struggle and agonizing in prayer. Now go back to Colossians. We see that in the life of Jesus. Paul says of Epaphras that he's always agonizing, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The NIV translates that wrestling in prayer. The New American Standard translates that laboring earnestly. The King James translates it laboring fervently. One commentator that I read translates it always combating. So we see this Greek word a couple different times. Uh, Commentator points out that in 1 Corinthians it's used to describe, that word struggling is used to describe the grueling completion endured by athletes in games or in the games, in what we would know as the Olympics. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, it's actually translated, that word agonizing or wrestling or laboring or struggling is translated to fight. If you're looking for a good devotional, there's one that is just a classic, and I I got my first copy of it almost 30 years ago. It is written by a man named Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers, in the devotion marked October 17th, says this, prayer does not prepare us or fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Just a few sentences down from there, he says, prayer is the battle. Sometimes we look at prayer as the thing to prepare us when prayer is, in fact, the battle. Prayer is the greater work. I want you to hold your spot in Colossians, and I want you to go just to the left, to the book of Ephesians. Another letter from the Apostle Paul. Maybe you will be familiar with this passage of Scripture, and I think we'll come back to it in a a little bit. 
as well, but Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 18. Actually, you know what? Let's start in verse 10. We'll skip a little bit of it. Here is the church at Ephesus Paul is writing to. And he says, finally, so this is kind of his closing thought. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, I like the word wiles, tricks of the devil. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Oftentimes, Christians make a disastrous decision, mistake, when we see people as the enemy. A person is never your enemy. Behind that is a spiritual force, a spiritual battle. We have to be aware of that. Well, that's not fought with physical weapons. And so Paul says, listen, you're going to want to put on this spiritual armor because there is a spiritual battle that is going on. That's what's behind everything. Epaphras recognized that in his city. He recognized that it wasn't going to be a mental chess game that he was going to be able to defeat uh, his kind of opponents or the people that were coming in and teaching false things in the church. He, he knew that there was a danger that people were going to get captured by that philosophy. They were going to get uh, tricked into it. It seemed to make sense on the surface. And so what is Epaphras doing? Epaphras is struggling, agonizing in prayer because he realizes that he must go to the supernatural. He must go to the God of the universe because there is a battle, an unseen battle that he's aware of. And so he is seeking the Lord on behalf of that. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. After listing these spiritual elements of, a, of an armor, verse 18, Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. So persevere in prayer. Persevere in supplication, going to God. Be alert in your prayers, making supplication for all the saints. And Paul says, also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So praying at all times. Now go back to Colossians chapter number four. Who's going to war? Who's going to bat? Who's going to battle? Who's going to work for this church? Epaphras wasn't there in person, but he's going to work for his church. He's going to work for fellow believers. And how is he doing that? He is agonizing, struggling. As we see the Lord Jesus setting that example in the garden, Epaphras is following that example and he's agonizing in prayer. He knows that is where the battle is fought. That is where the battle is fought and won is in prayer. I had a book that I had never referenced before and I was skimming it early this morning. It's kind of a last minute thought and the writer said this, he says, satanic forces combine with our lack of perseverance to keep us from effective prayer. Only the conviction that prayer works and tremendous compassion for those for whom we pray will make us true prayer warriors. That's a kind of a, 
a Christianese, a Christian phrase that you hear sometimes, a prayer warrior. Epaphras was an example of a prayer warrior. What was he doing? He was agonizing. He was fighting for his people in prayer. Man, what would God do if we became a church greater committed to agonizing in prayer for one another? Agonizing in prayer over our marriages, agonizing in prayer, struggling in prayer for our children, for the next generation. There's a lot of people who want to run their mouth complaining about the world when we ought to be going to the king of the universe, agonizing with him and saying, God, I'm so burdened by the brokenness of this world. God, I'm so burdened by my own brokenness and my own sin and my own depravity. God, I'm bringing that to you. Transform me. God, I'm bringing the marriages of our church. I'm bringing our leaders to you. I'm bringing our pastors to you. I'm bringing our staff to you. I'm bringing our kids to you and saying, Lord, I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to agonize over them rather than these, what we'll call pathetic prayers where it's like, oh God, oh, by the way, I forgot to pray for him. So and so I just want to throw that name up there real quick. Epaphras is not an out of sight, out of mind guy. He is wrestling and struggling and agonizing. He is combating. He is working. He is fervently praying for his people. And as Chambers says, prayer is the battle. All of our frustrations and anxieties, struggles, we can bring them to the Lord in prayer. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you and Paul says, I, I see this in him. He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Please hear me. It is not wrong to pray for things for yourself. One of my favorite prayers is in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. It's a daily prayer of my life. God, give me wisdom because I am stupid. And so, Lord, please, please help me understand. I prayed it this morning when we gathered for prayer at nine. Lord, just please give me wisdom and discernment, discernment beyond my own human capabilities. How much of our prayer time is spent on behalf of someone else? Hold your spot in Colossians. Go to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. This is another letter from Paul written to a pastor named Timothy. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. And if you wonder what the church should look like, First Timothy is the manual for how the church is supposed to operate. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers... Beautiful word here, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Look at the passage. The, the passage is a call to the church to be interceding on behalf of leaders and kings and other folks, thanksgiving and intercessions. Jen and I were, we had a, a spontaneous date yesterday. And uh, 
It was very nice and just needed in our life, and we were talking about some different things. And as we were talking through uh, our church, talking about some of you and um, our joys to see some of you walking with the Lord and earnestly seeking the Lord, man, and some of our struggles, some of our concerns, And as I was processing it over the last maybe 24 hours, I was thinking, man, I need to be agonizing in prayer on your behalf more and more. Interceding for you. What does interceding mean? It means going to God on your behalf. Like there's a problem and someone, we would use it in our common vernacular, someone intercedes. So many times we get frustrated with folks in our life. It's much easier to gossip about them. But how often do we take that energy and intercede for them? Credible example, a human example is Moses. Moses was dealing with these whiny people that he was leading from slavery to the promised land. Think about that. Some two million plus people and they were in rebellion against God. They were making false gods. They were complaining about God's food that he was dropping from the sky, not being good enough. I mean, all of these different things. Till finally, God says, I'm done with these people. I'm going to destroy all of them, and we'll restart with you, Moses. And Moses says, please don't do that. Seriously, Moses intercedes. I mean, you think about that. If you're Moses, if you or I are Moses, we're going to be like, about time, God. They're driving me crazy, too. Traveling will be easy. We'll be a lot faster to get from point A to point B, right? What does Moses do? Moses intercedes for the people. I love what that commentator says. He says, tremendous compassion for those for whom we pray. Years ago, I found this. I was the, started as a, a, a kid's pastor, and I kind of evolved from there. I was the kid's pastor and the men's pastor. I started teaching a men's Bible study on Sunday mornings. And so a handful of guys there, and one of the guys that came, super nice guy, but man, I didn't like his wife. Is that bad to say? Sorry. I'm just being honest, right? I just didn't like her, and she didn't like me. And she was just mean, and I was perfect in every way. I just didn't like this lady. Her husband's super nice, but she's just kind of not a nice lady at all. And I remember writing her name on my prayer list. And I just remember, like, well, you probably should pray for guys in your group and their wives. And I found something happen in my life. It was a lesson the Lord taught me, and I've never forgot it. You start praying for someone, you want to know how they're doing. Like, it's this weird thing that happened in my life. Like, this lady's not nice. She's not nice to me. I don't like her. We're going to dodge each other. And now I found myself for a few weeks, like, praying for her, praying for her family. So now I find myself in conversation, like, genuinely asking, how are you? I've been praying about this, this, and this. So you know what didn't matter anymore? Whether I relationally connected with her or not. 
didn't matter if our personalities were oil and water. What transformed my heart to be compassionate was I'm praying for her. I really want to know how you're doing because I've been interceding for you. I've been taking your name and your family to the creator of the universe. I want to know how the Lord has stepped into your life, how the Lord has met that need, how the Lord has brought peace to this situation. Yes, it's okay to to pray about things in our own life, but how often are we interceding and making what the Bible calls supplication for the needs and brokenness and hurts of other people? Go to Colossians chapter four. Paphras is doing that. He's struggling in prayer. Paul uses the word always there, so always struggling on your behalf in his prayers And here's the specific prayer for the church at Colossae from a man who is possibly their pastor. He says that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's praying for spiritual maturity. Now go back back to uh, um, Ephesians chapter 6 real quick. Prayer isn't just to prepare us for the battle. Prayer is the battle where the battle is fought and won. Look at verse 10 again, or excuse me, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Why put on the whole armor of God? That you may be able to stand. The end of verse 13, and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. Go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter number one. Verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting. Look at chapter two and verse number four. He says, I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent with you, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Look over at chapter 4 and verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. This isn't in my notes. I'm gonna get in trouble here now. Go back to Ephesians 4. God gives some giftings and some leaders and some people in the church the building up of the body of Christ, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or mature adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why is maturity important? So that we may no longer be tossed, or so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
believers often get tossed about by all these different waves or these different ideas or they get drawn away by this. And Epaphras recognized that that was happening and and could potentially happen at a greater uh, rate in Colossae. And so what was he battling? He was in prayer. He was struggling in prayer. And the specific prayer was, God, bring these folks to maturity. Grow them in grace. He, he says, in, Paul says in Colossians, it is a growth that comes from God. So, God, please grow them into maturity. And so he is agonizing and he is struggling in prayer because he doesn't want to see a young man or a young woman. He doesn't want to see a new believer go off into error. And so he's praying. He's agonizing. He's struggling. He's battling. And he's battling in prayer. Go to the right in your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter number four. This last week, uh, Keaton and I, I went to jail to teach. I uh, just want to see your faces. <laughs> see what happened. Uh, Keaton and I, I called him on uh, Thursday morning. I said, hey, you want to go to jail today? And uh, something funny almost happened, by the way. I probably shouldn't share this and it'll get me in trouble. So we, we show up to the jail and some, some technology issue was happening. I don't know if Keaton knows this. So we show up and they had some technology issues and they were like, oh man, who's going to teach? I'm like, well, Keaton's here. He's one of our pastors. He can jump in there and teach. Keaton's like, uh, sure, yeah. Uh, I don't have anything ready. I'm like, he'll be, he'll be fine. What he didn't know is it was going to be in the ladies' part of the jail. Now, it didn't end up happening, but I was kind of cruelly hoping it did. I just wanted to see Keaton's face after that. But uh, So Keaton and I were hanging out in the jail this week, and we were teaching. Uh, I was teaching a little bit and was answering some questions and walking through some different things and came to this passage of Scripture. And this is one of those passages that I come back to because it's one of those things that realigns my mind and my heart to the things of the Lord, especially in prayer. The Lord, as I've shared, has convicted me that we're never... We will never accomplish the mission that God has sent you and I on unless we are in fervent, earnest prayer. Or as again, the NIV says it, wrestling in prayer. And so I hope that you are praying for gospel opportunities. I hope that you're praying for your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your sibling that doesn't know the Lord, your friend, your coworker. You're praying for them by name. You are wrestling on their behalf. God, please illuminate the gospel truth to them. My hope is that we're not just spectators here on Sunday mornings, that we are in prayer for each other, with each other. 
I'm a little embarrassed that sometimes that's not even my natural habit to say, hey, can we stop and pray together? The Lord's convicted me about that. We need to be in prayer for each other that we'll mature. Struggling in prayer, praying that we will mature and be steadfast and be stable and be firm in our walk with the Lord. Because this is what the writer of Hebrews says about prayer. And man, is it wonderful. Scripture says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this is a beautiful image of the gospel. That you and I are separated from a holy God. We can't get to him. And so we need someone to intercede. We need an intermediary. And so Jesus is that. He's fully God, but he becomes also fully man. And he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our sin. And Jesus rises from the dead. And so the idea is that Jesus is this high priest who can go from sinful people to a holy God. And it says here he's passed through the heavens so we can hold fast to our confession. And so if you have come to Christ and repented of your sin, meaning turn from sin and turn to Jesus as Lord, believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's your high priest. That's your representative in heaven. And the beautiful thing, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So when we pray, we can come to God and we don't have to be like, hey God, everything's wonderful, I'm doing great. We can go to God and say, God, I'm a wreck. God, I'm confused. David even prays, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Like, are you hearing me? Hello. And we might seem disrespectful, but that's the way God wants us to come to him. God's not looking for us to have all our our T's crossed and our I's dotted. The sacrifices that God is looking for are a broken and contrite, meaning a broken and humble spirit. God, I'm just coming to you because I've messed up again. God, I did this again. God, I'm struggling with believing that again. And our high priest is able to empathize, sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to understand our temptation. God, I gave in again. God, I said that again. God, I went there again. But the distinction with our high priest is he is yet without sin. So how does that change the way we pray? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Yes, it's a throne of authority. Yes, it's a throne of power. But the foundation of his throne here, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, is grace. Grace meaning unmerited favor. So we can, because of Christ, go to God with confidence. We can draw near and we come not to just 
an old guy in the sky. We come to the king of the universe who sits on a throne ruling and reigning, who is the source of all good gifts. And so, God, we, we, we can come to the Lord and we can say, God, I don't have the power to do this, but you have the power to do this. God, my family is jacked up. I don't know how to fix it. I'm part of the mess. But, God, you sit on a throne, and it's a throne of grace. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews says this, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we can go with confidence to God and say, you sit on a throne of grace. You know all of my brokenness. You know my thoughts. You know the words before I even speak them. And you are merciful. And I need grace right now because I'm in a time of need. Now, here's the beautiful thing about prayer. We can go to God on our own behalf, right? We can go because of Christ, but we can also pray for one another. We can earnestly seek the Lord for one another, And so churches have become known more as judgmental places than pockets of immense gossip rather than I will genuinely pray for you. I will earnestly agonize over your struggle and your hurts and your pains and your medical needs and your family. I will earnestly contend for you. It won't be in passing. I will spend time doing that. I will turn the TV off. And I will be in prayer for you. I will put my stupid phone away and stop being distracted by all these things. And I will agonize in prayer over you. I may not sweat great drops of blood, but my heart and my mind will be locked in. Lord, I need you. And my friend needs you. And my neighbor needs you. And my church needs you. That's prayer. And as humbly, as kindly, and as gently as I can be, I am calling our church to greater prayer. There are people in your row who need you to agonize for them. Because their marriage is on the rocks. And you can't do anything about it, and I can't do anything about it, and no counselor can do anything about it. There's no magic wand. And so we got to take them by name to the Lord. We got kids and students in here whose life's on the brink. Young men and women who need to know that there are older saints in this room who are taking them by name to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How's school going? How's this class going? How can I pray for you? And when there is an earnest commitment to that, Man, I believe we're going to see God do some marvelous, miraculous, and amazing things. Years ago, I was a, when my first two girls were born, I was a a Pistons fan. They were in Auburn Hills at the time, and so we, you know, we could go to games and different things. And uh, I remember when they were both born. We were in the playoffs, and so there I was, being an awesome dad, holding a newborn baby in one arm and watching the Pistons. And uh, one of my favorite things about that time was the phrase, it's time to go to work. And, uh, you know, the, the horn would go off at the beginning of the game. It was kind of this kind of blue collar, we're going to go to work. It's just kind of a cool little thing they were doing. 
Prayer doesn't prepare us for the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer doesn't get us ready for the battle. Prayer is the battle. So it's time to go to work. You're a father in here. You need to be earnestly agonizing over your wife and your kids. You're a mom in here. You need to be earnestly agonizing in prayer, wrestling and struggling for your kids. You're a part of this church. We need to be praying and agonizing for one another. Earnestly seeking the Lord, committed to doing that. 